From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Megan Liebsch. It's hard to know where to start an interview with Jesuit Father Leo O'Donovan. At 89 years old, Father O'Donovan could boast a hefty list of accomplishments and accolades, though he's not much interested in bragging. A theologian by training, he studied under the prominent Jesuit Father Karl Rahner in Munich, where O'Donovan's own body of work would eventually earn him the Knight Commander's Cross of the Order of Merit with Star of the Federal Republic of Germany. For over a decade, Father O'Donovan served as the president of Georgetown University. He also served on the board of the Walt Disney Company and the National Council on the Arts. Through his many leadership positions, he has become friends with global leaders such as the German Chancellor Helmut Kohl, former U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, and President Joe Biden, to name a few. Contrary to what his impressive CV might imply, Father O'Donovan is easy to talk to. He's an eager storyteller, drawn to engaging people, whether that be his first grade teacher, a Dominican nun in New York City, or his mentor, Carl Rahner. For the last eight years, Father O'Donovan has served as the Director of Mission for the Jesuit Refugee Service in the U.S., a position which he calls, quote, an incredible privilege. Suffice to say, Father O'Donovan and I had no shortage of things to talk about. Our conversation covered everything from the unfolding refugee crisis to his leadership style, Vatican II, and even his art criticism. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So I want to start um, because in preparation for this interview, you know, I was I was Googling you and and sifting through some of your back catalog of written pieces for America Magazine, for National Catholic Reporter. Um, and I was surprised to find that over the course of the last decade, really, a lot of your writing has engaged art as a lens through which we can understand our 21st century political life. And so you've reviewed everything from uh, works of theater to stained glass installations to Mexican murals. Um, and you've said that the beauty of art for many people points to something, quote, beyond all human imagining. But you've also said that ugliness plays an important role in art. So what can the tension between beauty and ugliness in art reveal about our world? What can it reveal about our faith and our spirituality? Well, thanks for checking me out. I've never Googled myself, by the way. Um, so I don't know what, if you Google me, what you get. But uh, Only good things. <laughs> well, um, actually, if you ask me what I have written about, uh, I, I would first I would first say uh, theological subjects because that's what I am a theologian, but I'm a theologian who grew up in Manhattan, and whose uh, whose dad took me to the Museum of Natural History, and whose mother took me to the uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Frick Collection, which she knew by heart. Uh, I introduced myself to the uh, Museum of Modern Art. And once I discovered the Museum of Modern Art, um, I loved it and went often. And I would almost never go without going up the staircase to the second floor 
to see the installation of Picasso's Guernica, the great mural he did after the uh, awful uh, bombing by the fascists of the Spanish town of Guernica during the Spanish Civil War. Now, it could be used today for to describe what's going on in um, in Israel and Gaza. It's it's a painting that's very hard to uh, describe because it's crowded with violence and suffering, and it's done in grisaille, that is to say, in shades of of white, black, and gray. Um, because Picasso got word of what was happening through the newspapers in Paris. And <clears throat> you, you could scarcely say it's beautiful, except insofar as it takes hold of you and says, look at this uh, slain horse, look at this wounded bull, look at this screaming woman with her baby. Um, they all have symbolic value. It leads you to think about suffering. Uh, it it uh, it envelops you in suffering in a way that uh, paintings of battle scenes in the classical mode uh, seldom do. There are great great paintings by uh, neoclassical painters like Poussin of battle scenes, but they're beautiful. Everybody looks very handsome. Uh, uh, but, but they don't evoke the terror of suffering. A very good example of the contrast between beautiful and uh, jarring portrayals of uh, a subject would be the crucifixion. The painter Grunewald did a painting of the crucifixion called, which is now known as the Isenheim altarpiece. And it is incredibly painful to look at. He did it for a monastery uh, where uh, people with skin disease were treated in the hospital. And the Christ figure is uh, racked with pain and distorted limbs and a body that's flayed with wounds, like the people in the hospital. So I have, I have sat in front of that painting uh for hours. Uh, I never thought I'd get to see it because it's in a small town called Colmar in Alsace. But when I went to Helmut Kohl's funeral ceremony in Strasbourg at the European Union, I realized that I was within uh, 30 or 40 minutes of, of Colmar and I hopped right on the train and went down, spent the day in the museum and many hours at, at the uh, before the crucifixion. So um, 
the what 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 uh, I I wouldn't often say ugliness, but, but what harsh realism brings to painting or to music or to literature is uh, the encounter with the underside, uh, the sorrows of life, which um, many painters and musicians and novelists have not wanted to confront. But modernism uh, wants the whole package and we are not always pretty people. We do awful things such as we, the world is now witnessing, not only in the Ukraine, which is ter a terrible, terrible scene, but now also in Gaza. I I was brushing up um, on Karl Rahner a little bit, um, and, and we'll get into him a little bit later since um, you, as you say, are a theologian and studied under him um, for a time. Um, and something that he talks about is the experience of God within that reaches to to another worldly God. And that is something to me that seems to be um, like a core kind of feature or, or purpose of art. Um, so I'm wondering what you make of that as a theologian. I, I think great art, um, great art isn't made to change you. Great art is made because the artist, the painter, the musician, the writer, the playwright, uh, the architect, uh, the window maker. Uh, uh, my favorite work of art in, in the whole world is the Cathedral of Chartres, where not only the windows are magnificent, but the architecture is magnificent and the sculpture is magnificent. Um, the um, people who put through the cathedral up uh, are said in, um, in, in the wonderful book, Mont Saint-Michel and Chartres, uh, to have done it for the glory and the pleasure of the Queen of Heaven, Mary. But what it does for the visitor or the observer, or the participant, is in fact to change your life. If you if you sit for long enough in front of the west front of the Cathedral of Chartres, you learn to distinguish between the South Tower, which seems at first very plain, and the North Tower, which seems wonderfully intricate and decorated, and decorative until you come to realize that the South Tower, which is much earlier, three centuries earlier, is indeed a more beautiful work. Henry Adams, who wrote Mont Saint Michel and Chartres, said it was the most beautiful structure ever built by human beings. Well, he wrote in a classical mode. Uh, I'm not sure I would say that, but I would say that I've I've sat in front of the tower for hours on end, marveling at how uh, <clears throat> a tower that began uh, begins as a square turns into a spire that has eight sides to it. 
and um, changes your perception of <clears throat> what you can see. Te it teaches you to see. I love that idea that that sitting with a building or with a work of art or or whatever it is can change your life. I think that's such a dramatic way to put it. And we often don't, unless maybe we are an architect or, or something like that. We often don't talk about um, art or our built environment that way, but it's true. Yep. You were, as you said, uh, born and raised in, in Manhattan, in New York City. And then you went on to attend Georgetown University, where you received a Fulbright scholarship to um, study in France, I believe. And it was during that time that you decided to become a Jesuit. So what, what prompted your interest in theology and in vocation? Well, I wish it were a good story, Meg, but it isn't. Um, uh, it, my, my, uh, my coming to the decision to uh, apply to the Jesuits uh, was very gradual. It wasn't marked by any singular experience. I've since had a few singular experiences, but um, there were there were blocks in the way, or, or uh, uh, things to keep me from deciding to apply to the Jesuits, uh, not least the city of Paris, and. Uh, you know, you, you never forget your first love, and I've never forgotten forgotten Paris and friendships uh, that I formed. Uh, but little by little, I decided in language that was uh, not very Catholic that I wanted to be, I hoped to be a minister. A minister in my church. This was at a time when the uh, ultramontanism of the Pian epic, when the, the Pope's name Pius had dominated the church, was uh, reigning. And I was not very taken by that. Uh, I was, in fact, uh, disenchanted by what I thought was the neglect of the world in my education at Georgetown, religiously, I mean. I remember very clearly thinking, well, yes, this gospel of the kingdom of God is beautiful, but uh, what about the world? What is our responsibility? Uh, so the, the simplest language I found was, I wanted to be a minister. I wanted to be someone serving in the church with a view towards uh, the welfare of humankind. I will say that though, though my decision was not very interesting, um, it was the great decision of my life. And I have been ever since deeply grateful that I made it. I find almost every year that I'm happier being a Jesuit priest than I was the year before. 
And, uh, and now I can give reasons for that, despite having been a theologian. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful, though. Well, so let's let's talk about theology a little bit. Um, so, as I as I mentioned, as a Jesuit and and theology student, you studied under the Jesuit theologian Karl Rahner. Um, I think while receiving your PhD from Munster University. Um, so, what what struck you about Rahner's theology? Why did you want to work with him? Well, I, I had a, a great lead up. Uh, I was fortunate to do my basic theology at Woodstock College in Maryland. I, I joined the Maryland province of the Jesuits because that's where I got to know the Society of Jesus at Georgetown, even though my uncle, my dad's younger brother, was a Jesuit. But where I really got to know the Jesuits was at Georgetown. I had gone to a terrific prep school, Iona School, which was Irish Christian Brothers, and um, um, loved the school. The school was very good to me, but it never occurred to me to become a uh, to become a brother. So um, <clears throat> uh, when when I entered the Jesuits, I went through the usual course of studies, but as far as theology went, um, we didn't have much theology until we had our four formal formal years of theology, and I did mine at Woodstock in Maryland, and we had a marvelous faculty. I began to read Carl Rahner's um, little book, Encounters with Silence. And as far as I'm concerned, with this podcast, if anybody wants to take anything away that would be useful, it would be Get yourself a copy of Carl Rahner, Encounters with Silence, and don't listen to any more drivel from Leo. It is a magnificent little book, which which he wrote uh, anonymously at first for priests in the Diocese of Innsbruck just before the Nazi Anschluss uh, into, into, into Austria. And it's a series of reflections on how God uh, is the God of my life, the God of my vocation, the God of my everyday, the God of my dead, the God of my hope, the God of my future. And I suddenly thought, here is somebody who's speaking a language after decades that I'm reading and it all makes sense to me. I, I find my somewhere inside me resonating with what he says about our desire for God, which is an old theological topic, but a desire for God, which is given to every human being in what Carl calls the supernatural existential. There have been there have been many debates over what the supernatural meant. And he, in many ways, cut through the debates by saying, however the world might have been shaped, the way it has in fact been shaped is that humanity 
is created in the image of God, for God, and for happiness with God. That has implications. What, what about people who are barred from a sense of God's presence because they're living in desperate situation? What about the poor? Well, when I first read Rahner, I didn't think that much about the poor, to be honest. But I, I, I then read liberation theologians who um, made it very clear to me that it was not just a matter of loving and worshiping a crucified Lord, but in fact, as Ignacio Ea put it, taking the people off the cross, not being satisfied with the world in which the poor, especially in Latin America for Ea Korea, are, uh, are crucified. I did remember what was written on the wall of Gaston Hall at Georgetown. And when I went back many years later as the president, often quoted what was written there. Uh, on the wall is written, for the greater glory of God on one side of the wall and on the other side of the wall, inque salutem hominum and for the welfare of human beings. Not, uh, and later if you get to it, but and, the purpose of life is to give glory to God and to serve the welfare of human beings. Uh, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. That, that That's almost as good as Pope Francis. You see what I mean? I had gone from an education where, where the welfare of humankind was like an afterthought. I'm exaggerating. I'm exaggerating, but not entirely. Um, and where the, the teaching of the church was chiefly about the latest uh, documents from Rome to a... Um, to a church where, while I was in theology, uh, the Second Vatican Council was meeting, and uh, the bishops, the bishops, the bishops were saying, uh, the hopes and fears, the joys and sorrows of all humankind are ours. That's the beginning of the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world. And if anybody is listening to the podcast and is not satisfied with reading Karl Rahner, go read the Pastoral Constitution. You can't read it too often. It's just a great, great document. Uh, and it's about doing, doing life and not observing it. I decided maybe, maybe I want to be a theologian. I asked permission to concentrate on that. I was told, yes, go ahead. So I started to learn German and uh, went to Münster, where Carl was in his last four years of teaching. And, um, and 
had the great, great benefit of hearing him day after day after day and many a night over beer. Uh, I have left out, though, uh, another group of teachers, which uh, I shouldn't have left out. And they were my the, the Dominican nuns who taught me at Corpus Christi Grammar School when I was a boy. At the funeral of my first grade nun in a black area of Chicago, after hearing one wonderful black parishioner after another praise Sister Richardine, I said to myself, I have to say something. I have to give witness to this woman. And I got up and said, uh, it was only today that I realized that Sister Richardine was born the same year as Carl Rahner. At the time, he was probably the most famous theologian in the world. But without a doubt, my best teacher, my best teacher, without a doubt, had been Sister Richardine. They set me on a way of thinking and a course of relating to my fellow students that shaped my life forever, far more than even St. Thomas or Carl Rahner. I often think that too. I was educated by Sisters of St. Joseph. And I think, you know, if it, if it weren't for them and the things that they taught me about liberation theology um, and, and human rights in Latin America, I don't think I'd be the same person. You know, I'm immensely grateful to Sisters. Yes. Yes, which is one among many reasons why our beloved church must make some real structural changes to give women uh, not only some, but major voice and major representation in the church if we're going to be a true communion of uh, brothers and sisters of Jesus. This question actually comes from um, a, a theologian friend of mine. Um, and I know we just talked about a lot of people um, and their kind of theological influence on you. But something he and I, this friend and I were talking about as I was explaining um, this, this podcast and interviewing you um, was the space that Rahner's theology occupied in the 20th century as, as being very famous and, and kind of popular as, as you say. Um, and he was especially influential at Vatican II. Um, but also some of his writings, they don't really um, discuss or deal with some of the, the things that came after Vatican II, whether that's liberation theology or, or some of the kind of conservative critiques of Vatican II. Um, and so I'm I'm curious in particular what what Rahner's theology um, or or your kind of own view of of theology is informed by that offers us today in in 2023 in our current context. Well, good question, good question. Carl would often 
Carl would often be asked uh, why he hadn't written more about uh, any particular subject. He did write about women in the church. He did address the question of women's ordination, but tentatively and initially. Um, but when asked why he didn't write more about an issue like that, he would say, well, you go ahead and do it. In other words, he, he, nearly, he, nearly, he nearly exhausted himself at the council. He was really wrung out at the end of the council because he was in such demand. He wasn't alone in that respect. Edward Skillebex, uh, Marie-Dominique Chenou, uh, uh, Henri de Lubac were all uh, called upon a great deal. But he, he was called on a great deal. Um, one, one way to um, locate him, I think, would be to, to, uh, to use David Tracy, Tracy's notion of a classic. I think uh, we see now that Karl Rahner was a classic uh, translation of the uh, neo-scholastic framework to theology to a more experientially centered, human experience centered um, theology uh, with a much greater awareness of how many questions uh, remain before us, how much uh, we don't know, how we can never move away from the incomprehensibility of God. Think of all the people who talk to you about heaven as a place where we'll finally get all the answers. Um, Karl Rahner would say, heaven is rather a place where we will have even more questions. Uh, and they will... Uh, they will be enfolded in ever-increasing love. Uh, so I think he will he will go down in history as a classic, the way uh, Cardinal Newman from the 19th century, uh, Augustine from the early 5th century, Thomas from the 13th century are classics. You can't expect a classic author to have raised every question, much less to have answered every question that we face today is just not uh, uh, humanly possible. And um, the, the liberation thinkers that I know uh, know their indebtedness to Rahner. They know that when he wrote his famous little essay on theology and anthropology, he was setting a bar for how to think in theology. The, the argument of that little essay from about 1958, um, it's in the fourth volume of Theological Investigations. The argument, Meg, is that whenever we say something about God, 
we implicitly say something also about humanity. And when we say something about humanity, uh, we say something about God. For example, if we think that um, because reason is so important, we can uh, exhaust the understanding of the human, then we're thinking that God can likewise be exhausted. But that's absurd. Um, we can no more exhaust the understanding of God than we can exhaust the understanding of the human. So as you as you had mentioned a little bit earlier, in 1989, you became president of Georgetown University, and you oversaw a period of substantial growth there. So as an administrator who's juggling, you know, competing concerns of, of students, of faculty, of donors, of the Society of Jesus, of which Georgetown is connected to... Um, what part of your formation or your kind of ministerial um, experience did you draw on on most? Um, was it your academic training as a professor of theology, or was it more that kind of pastoral training? I think it was the whole package. Um, I, uh, you know, Jesuits don't have careers; the Jesuits have missions, and. Um, I never thought of working at Georgetown as a nice chapter in my career. I looked upon it as a trust I was given and that I would uh, hold as faithfully as I could and as much as a Jesuit. So there were, there were ways to try to remember that I was meant to be a man who knew what, what poverty was like. Uh, many, many ways that you might not think of. Um, I was uh, a man who uh, was, as a Jesuit, was um, encouraged to bring the, uh, the, uh, the evolving mission of the Society of Jesus uh, into the into the atmosphere of the university. Uh, what, what does that mean? Um, I always thought of the university as a home for wisdom, a place where people sought in various ways, some as medical people, some as lawyers, some as business people, some as artists, to um, enrich the lives around them and um, be as giving as possible. So the whole package, um, but the, on the day that I was elected president, the gospel for that day was Jesus being asked, what is the greatest commandment? 
And as you remember, he answered, the first is you shall love the Lord, uh, your God, with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I thought, well, that's not a bad, that's not a bad roadmap. And it's awfully close to, to the greater glory of God and the welfare of humankind, seems to me. Absolutely. You um, served on the board of Walt Disney Company, and you also have and did have and, and still have friendships with prominent public servants, including our current president, Joe Biden. Um, and I think some might say that traveling in these kind of circles of, of power of wealthy business owners or, um, or, or presidents or world leaders might generate distance between, you know, the powerful and, and people who are marginalized, um, people who you've been talking about this whole episode. Um, so I'm curious how you understand or, or understood at the time your role in some of those circles of power in raising the concerns of people who are marginalized or, or less advantaged. Right, right. There's no doubt that the president of a university has power. Um, uh, any president who thinks she has a lot of power uh, really ought to go to a counselor because your, your power is appropriately limited by the nature of the university, its, its mission statement, its history, its context, its goals. But, um, but you do have influence. If, if you ever came into my office, uh, you would have noticed that um, there was not a single picture of a famous person in my office except a portrait of John Carroll, who, uh, uh, by Gilbert Stewart, a pretty good painting by Gilbert Stewart, which hung right opposite uh, my desk. And on good days, I would say, well, John, things are going okay. And on bad days, I'd say, John, help me out, would you? It was fun to meet famous people. Uh, Helmut Kohl became a very good and very personal friend. I like to think that George Mitchell is a great friend. And uh, I'm happy to mention him now because he needs prayers. He's suffering from multiple myeloma. And uh, <clears throat> and it's very difficult. Um, people like that set an example. Um, neither of them were in their respective positions for the power principally. I mean, Helmut liked being the chancellor of Germany. <clears throat> but when he ran for the last time, I remember asking him on the lawn, why are you putting yourself through this? And he said, 
for the euro. He wanted to be sure that the euro was accepted. Uh, George Mitchell, who could easily have been nominated to the Supreme Court when, while he was the majority leader in the Senate, didn't want to leave the Senate because uh, he thought he was guiding the Democratic majority well, and he was indeed. So, you know, you, every once in a while, you just measure yourself um, and see whether uh, your head is being turned. As, as I said, uh, Jesuits don't have careers. They have missions. And um, if you're at all sensible, uh, not, not just during your annual retreat, but daily, you look around and you think, um, am I, why am I doing this? And the answer should be because it will promote wisdom on the campus, uh, not because uh, we'll stay high in the rankings. Thank you for that. I hope you don't find me terribly skeptical for asking. I'll give you an example, Meg. Um, in 2015, when Bo Biden died, um, Joe Biden was then vice president. Barack Obama was the president. Um, um, the vice president called me up. And um, if you know Washington, you, you know the protocol of how you address people. And if, if the vice president calls you up, uh, or the former vice president, you use his title. Uh, you say, uh, good morning, Mr. Vice President. Well, Bo had died on Friday, and he was calling me on Monday morning. And um, I said, um, Joe, I'm so sorry. And I began to cry. And he began to comfort me. He, the grieving father, began to comfort the witless priest. And then he said he had a great favor to ask. And it was that I might say the funeral mass for Bo and also give the homily, which is very unusual. Usually one priest will preside at the mass and another will give the homily. And then he told me why, um, why he uh, was asking me. And I have never told anybody, not even God, what he said because it was too kind. So that day at least, I went to bed thinking that I wasn't entirely full of myself. So since 2016, um, you've served as the VP of, of Mission for Je Jesuit Refugee Service USA. Um, so what drew you to working with 
with migrants and refugees? What what drew you to JRS? Well, thanks for asking because it means a great deal to me. Um, I had written one essay for a French magazine on uh, refugees and exiles, but I had very little experience with with the refugee regime. Uh, my provincial called me up in October of 2015 and said that uh, Jesuit Refugee Service in Washington didn't have a Jesuit on the team and they'd like very much to have a Jesuit. And could I, at least part-time, uh, consider helping out? And I said, well, I really don't know much about the, that world, Bob, but what I know is a, it's a great crisis. At that time, there were something like 62 million refugees and displaced people. A refugee is somebody who has crossed an international boundary to go to another country. A displaced person is someone who is uh, displaced within the person's own country. And there are more of them for example, in Ukraine, uh, or uh, than, than, strictly speaking, refugees. So I said, well, uh, of course I'll think about it. And I went to visit, um, I went to visit, uh, after a wedding I did in Washington, I went to visit the office, and I was very impressed with what I saw they were doing. And um, then I, got on the train to come back to New York and teach the next day. I was teaching at Union Theological Seminary. And um, I had an experience of Jesus telling me to help out. And that ended that. That night I went to the chapel thinking, I'm just a sentimental Irishman who responded to this call of need for so many people. Um, but, but the invitation remained. And so, uh, uh, so I called up and said, uh, I'm on. They didn't have a title for me. They didn't have a job description. I got to write my own. Now that's a dream job. Um, and it has been uh, a great, great blessing. Uh, I've learned many, many things. Um, the most unhappy thing is that the crisis uh, keeps growing. I, I mentioned that there were about 62 million uh, refugees and internally displaced people when I joined JRS. There are now over 100 million. And uh, part of that is the Ukraine war. Uh, there'll be uh, more from Gaza. Um, but I've learned that these are not the refugees and internally displaced people of our world are not other people. They are our brothers and sisters. They are our refugees. 
They are as loved by God as we hope we are, and almost certainly more. We don't give them dignity, although people often talk this way, by trying to help them. They have inalienable dignity by their very nature as children of God. Nobody can give them dignity. It's theirs. It's theirs by their nature. What we can give is education. And what I, one of the other, other things I've learned is that the, again and again and again, what adults tell you they most want, adult refugees, is education for their children. And we try to give that. And we try to give it especially to girls because they're most at risk of not being given an education. They're most at risk of being abused. And they're most at risk of dropping out of school if circumstances become difficult. And we, we, we work against that. So it's only one organization, but, but I'm very proud of the Society of Jesus that for 43 years now, we've been uh, going where nobody else goes, staying when nobody else stays, and never leaving. If we go someplace to help refugees, we stay there as long as they need us. Well, to be even a small, small part of that is an incredible privilege. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for being here, Leo. My pleasure. My pleasure. It's all, as, as you say, AMGG. In quae, in quae salutum hominum. <laughs> That's our show. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about Leo O'Donovan's work with the Jesuit Refugee Service, you can visit jrsusa.org. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. This episode was edited and produced by me, Megan Leach. Our communications team is Mike Jordan-Lasky, Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Becky Sindelar, and Kristen Smith. Original theme music created by Kevin Lasky. Connect with the Jesuits online at Jesuits.org, on Instagram at WeAreTheJesuits, and at Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you're interested in discerning a vocation with the Jesuits, visit BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. And subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Thanks.